All right. I invite you to step back in. I can't whistle. All right. Welcome back in. Excited to be able to bring the word to you this morning. I do enjoy sharing about what we're doing, but I enjoy the word of God even more. I mean, the word of God is the reason why we, serve, why we do what we do. It's, it's everything. The, the word of God is the basis for everything we do. And so to be able to bring the word to you this morning, it's an honor. Appreciate the opportunity from the church to do that. And today, I'm going to be sharing from two different passages, and I know your bulletin says John, but it is Matthew, and that's going to be Matthew 8, 23 through 27, and 14, 22 through 33. And even though these are two separate passages, they're actually meant to be understood together. When reading a story like Matthew's narrative, we can't always just go text by text. I know a lot of people love that, just verse by verse, text by text. But seeing the text the way someone like Matthew actually laid it out in this beautiful Jewish style of writing, we can't just go verse by verse. We actually have to see the bigger picture to see how he's connecting things, how he's paralleling things, how questions are asked and answered. And that might have been natural for his audience to do because they were Jews. But for us, it's a little bit harder. We have to step into those shoes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share these two stories orally with you. And like I said, I love the word, but I'm going to do this to recapture your attention with stories that I'm sure you've heard dozens of times, if not hundreds. And I hope that by sharing them this way, it will increase your awe and your wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ and help us to understand Matthew's intent for his audience. And when we share Bible stories in Catholic, this is often how we do it orally, because we want to lead everyone to the text, but when we hear a story orally, it's just a little more easy to understand. So I want to share now a story from God's word. One day, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat to go to the other side of the lake. Well, as they were going across, Jesus went back to the back of the boat and he fell asleep. Well, not too long after this, a huge storm rolled in. There was wind and waves, and the waves were so big, they were even crashing over the side of the boat, almost making it sink. Well, the disciples, they went back to where Jesus was sleeping, and they said, Jesus, wake up. Don't you even care that we're about to drown? But Jesus just stood up, and he spoke to the wind and the waves, and he said, be quiet. And immediately, the storm was calm. And Jesus looked at the disciples and said, why were you so afraid? Don't you have even a little faith? Well, the disciples, they looked at each other and they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, another time, Jesus sent his disciples to, into a boat to go to the other side of the lake while he stayed behind to pray. Well, a little while later, Jesus looked out and he saw his disciples were struggling to row because another storm came in. And so they're having a hard time rowing against the wind and the waves. So he went out to them, walking on top of the water. Well, at first when they saw him, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke immediately and he said, don't be afraid. Take courage, I'm here. But Peter said, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you walking on top of the water. 
But Jesus said, come on. So Peter got out of the boat, stepped on top of the water, and started walking to where Jesus was. But then Peter looked and he saw the wind and the waves and he became afraid and he started to sink and he cried out, Jesus, save me. Jesus took a hold of Peter's hand, pulled him back on top of the water and he looked at him and he said, why were you so afraid? Don't you have even a little faith? Then he walked with Peter back to the boat and as soon as they got in the boat, the storm completely stopped. Well, the disciples worshiped Jesus and they said, truly, you are the son of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is living and active and often we just ignore it or reject it because often we try to find happiness in any other way that we were not meant to. We try to fill our lives with things, with people, with distractions, and all that does is leave us empty. You designed us to need you. You designed us to worship you and serve you. You designed us to love your words, but often we don't. Often our hearts are far from you. But I praise you that your Holy Spirit, when he comes in our lives, awakens our hearts, awakens our emotions and our desires to be what you intended them to be, in awe of you, in worship of you. I pray, Lord, that that would be the case this morning, that if we, those of us who are your children, would listen and understand and go out into the world to share the message that you have given us, that you have entrusted to us, that we will proclaim it with boldness and humility and gentleness so that you might save some. Change our hearts in the process, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was raised in a Christian home, probably like many of you, and this was one of my favorite stories growing up. And I would say that anyone, anyone who's had any type of Christian upbringing has heard this story, and you wonder, how did this really happen? And I remember even on several occasions, we didn't have a pool, but anytime I was at a pool and nobody was watching, I would stand there at the edge, <laughs> and I would just close my eyes and just try my hardest to muster up as much faith as I could, and I would step out like Peter, like Jesus, and just find out that gravity was much stronger than my faith. <laughs> I would just go straight to the bottom. If you're honest, how many of you have also tried that at some point in your life, especially kids? No? Okay, I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> we often hear the word of God and think, oh, I could do this too. This is meant for all of us. We're amazed that faith could accomplish such an impossible thing, but then we wonder, what would it look like to really have that much faith? And with no one ever walking on water since that day, at least that we have record of, we wonder why what Peter did and what Jesus did was, was not replicable, right? If we're being honest, we ask that question, how come nobody could do that today if it's just a matter of faith? Well, this might come as a shock, but it, it was not faith that held Peter up that day. Though that's what's portrayed to most of us growing up, it was not what Matthew was trying to show in this story. It was quite the opposite. What made Peter walk out on that water was actually the opposite of what we should be doing today, and I hope to show you why. Matthew, this disciple, is an amazing storyteller, 
and he loves to talk about the kingdom of God and his gospel. He works hard in his gospel to expand his readers' minds that the kingdom of God is not just a place. It's not really a place at all. He wants them to know that the kingdom of God is anywhere where God's people are gathered under God's rule in his very presence with his power and word guiding them. And this story is no different. It teaches us about God's kingdom and specifically who the king is and what he's capable of doing. When we see those two things, who Jesus is and what he's capable of, we will overcome two very strong temptations in our own lives, which are to doubt the presence of God with us and to doubt the word of God to us. And Matthew wants you to enter the shoes of the disciples. And in order to effectively learn what he wants us to learn, we have to do this. You see, the disciples, they were not the heroes. And Matthew knows this best of all. They were slow to learn, quick to make mistakes, and rarely demonstrated faith. I don't know about you, but it's pretty easy for me to enter those shoes because that pretty accurately describes me. Slow to learn, quick to make mistakes, and rarely demonstrating true faith. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at these stories. Story starts with Jesus and his disciples in a boat crossing a lake. And up until this point, Matthew records that Jesus has only given the Sermon on the Mount. He's healed a man with leprosy, an officer's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law. So his ministry at this point in the first story is still really fresh. And no doubt his disciples knew this is somebody special. But there was one crucial thing about Jesus they did not know yet. And this was something that Jesus didn't just want to sit down and explain to them. He didn't want to just teach them. He wanted to show them. So that's where the story comes in. As they're all sailing across this lake, this storm rolls in. So you get in this, it's like you would think, if you're, you're about to cross the lake, you would look out and say, I don't think a storm's coming. And I think that's what they did. They, they're going out, it looks nice, then all of a sudden, this storm comes in. And we're supposed to be sitting here thinking as the audience, is this a coincidence? Not at all. Jesus is actively changing the setting of his own story from just a peaceful sail across the lake to certain death, a Titanic prequel, right? He is going to make crazy stuff happen. And this was 100% intentional. It had been proven, it's been proven over and over again, and you know this in your own lives, that people learn best through trial. And the one who made people is going to follow his own rules. He is going to cause trial so that these disciples will learn best, something that they will never forget. So Jesus is using this storm that he's in control of to provoke these natural human reactions. Panic, we've known a lot of that these past few years, fear and questioning. And it's actually the best possible question that's asked at the end of the story that the disciples could ever ask. And it's something that without this storm, they might have taken much longer to ask this question and figure out. So here we are, we're, we're, we're sailing across the lake. Jesus is in the back sleeping. The waves are breaking to the boat. The disciples are freaking out. And it's just, we're meant to stop there and say, holy cow, Jesus is sleeping during a storm. The one who made bodies, the one who made heaven and earth, he's sitting in the back of the boat sleeping. I think that's amazing because we know that the scripture says 
He who watches over Israel will never, neither sleep nor slumber. Yet here's Jesus with the Israelites completely crashed out. I find that to be amazing because here he's showing his 100% humanity. He needs sleep. The, I mean, I could barely sleep through Jen rolling over next to me. I'm a very light sleeper, but here's Jesus with waves crashing over the boat, crashed out sleeping. That is your savior. That is God. He became human, fully fell into deep sleep. But now what Jesus wants us to see is the 100% God part of him. So they, they're freaking out. They go over to Jesus and they wake him out and they say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. I mean, just like any of these disciples, just like any of us would, these guys want Jesus' help. They knew that Jesus was special, that he was capable of helping. They had seen him do amazing things so far, but what they didn't realize in this moment was not what Jesus was capable of, what the storm was incapable of doing. God himself was in the boat with the disciples that day, but they didn't know that. They saw their problem, they saw the storm, and they naturally wanted to escape it. They were scared of drowning, and I am too. I think that would be the worst way to go. But what Jesus does next is both a rebuke and a lesson to them. So Jesus simply responds, Lord, it says, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Everything about what was happening in that storm should have made them afraid. But the one and only thing that could change that was God's physical presence with them. And that was the disciple's shortfall. They didn't believe that God was present there with them because they didn't know yet that Jesus was God. And they were about to see that firsthand. So Jesus, he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they obey him. The calm came immediately. It didn't wait. Just like when he said, let there be light and light came, he said, be quiet. And that storm was quiet. With their jaws dropped to the floor, they asked the best question. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This was a real part of the disciples' journey to becoming spirit-filled apostles. We can't overlook that before they were church planners, before they were martyrs, they were fools. These guys were just average Joes displaying what average Joes do, which is doubt, fear, attempt to control. And the kingdom of God doesn't work like that. Matthew, who understood the story at the time of writing his narrative, is writing to people who still don't understand who Jesus is. Either they weren't alive when Jesus was around, or they just weren't near him. So Matthew wants these Christians that he's writing to to know that Jesus, as God, is supreme over creation, specifically the weather. And weather is a scary thing, and it has, it's been taking lives. I mean, tornadoes, floods, whatever it is, fires. We had horrible forest fires last year. Weather has been taking lives since the beginning of the world. And Matthew isn't saying you should laugh in the face of natural disasters. He's saying that you should be calm knowing that nothing in nature is outside of the sun's control. All of nature obeys him. So the first temptation that we could overcome by truly believing that Jesus is God, that he is truly present with us. We don't have to fear. We are constantly tempted to think Jesus is not 
present with us. And that either causes us to sin or causes us to be unproductive, right? Because when we think Jesus isn't right there, it's easier to fall into sin because we think we could hide it from him. We think we could be more satisfied with sin than we can with him. Or we, know, we might know that Jesus sees our sin, but we also think that maybe Jesus doesn't see what we're doing with our lives, that the commands to go and make disciples is for other people, not for, for us. And so we overcome that temptation when we understand that Jesus is the Son of God and he's present with us. And that's what the disciples struggled with that day is that Jesus was there, but they didn't understand who he was, and so therefore they struggled with this panic, this fear, this anxiety. Jesus promised to be with us to the end of the age, so that means that nothing, nothing can take him away from us, even death. Much of our anxiety and our illusion of control could be eradicated from our lives if we simply believe that God is present with us right now. What could possibly be better than that? If that doesn't excite you, the gospel won't excite you. God's present with you through his spirit. But friends, this takes faith. It takes faith. It seems like a simple truth, but it takes so much faith to believe this in the face of fear, danger, or anxiety. When I, when I returned from our last trip to the States, I can't explain it, but I was filled with so much anxiety. There was a, a lot going on in Cat Lake, and I had been at a peak of struggling with fear of people, fear of man, over fear of God. And I remember getting back, just about to enter a new just stretch of time, and I was just laying on the floor in the kitchen, just thinking, like, I, I can't do this. I'm so stressed out. I, I, I can't control it either. I don't know why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. But I remember just this peace came over me that the same faith it took for me to believe the gospel is the same faith I need to get through this anxiety. And it's not faith I can muster up. It's faith that's given as a gift. So I got up off the floor, still, still anxiety, but just a peace knowing I can't change this. God can. And the next morning I was, I was running on the treadmill listening to an album I just rarely listen to. And there was a song that came on that is exactly what my heart needed. And God answered that prayer to just give me the faith by allowing me to listen to that song. And I'm sitting there like weeping as I'm running. It's like the worst thing you could do is like crying while you're trying to run on a treadmill. But in that moment, my heart just let go of that anxiety and that illusion of control. But that's only God. So that's why I'm saying it seems like a simple truth to believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he's present with us. But it is truly a gift to believe that and apply it to every area of your life. Well, the story is far from over. We have this question, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? But we need the answer. And I know you know the answer, but we're going to see how Matthew reveals that answer. This first story was just a to be continued to him. In real life, lots happen between these two stories. But when he's actually writing it in his narrative, they're only a couple pages apart, these stories. His audience is still tracking with this question. And it's actually amazing between these stories, the answer to this question is actually getting stronger and stronger because in the next story, a demoniac calls Jesus the son of God. And then the Pharisees, it says that they question themselves, does he think he's the son of God? And now it's the disciples' turn to weigh on in this. The demons know he's the son of God. The Pharisees are saying, does he think he's the son of God? Now we're going to see what the disciples say. And once again, it's going to be through trial. Verse 22 says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. Well, he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. 
Night fell while he was there alone. So going back to the whole question of coincidence, do you see how Jesus insisted that his disciples go back into the boat without him, forcing yet another situation, just like he did in the first story? In that one, in the first one, he was with them, but now in this one, they're going to be completely alone when disaster strikes. Because they kind of missed the point the first time, but this time, Jesus is going to make sure that, he really, that they really knew exactly who he was. But there's another parallel that we see already just from these first few verses. In the first story, we see Jesus' humanity and the fact that he needed to sleep. But now we see his humanity and the fact that he needs to pray. When Jesus was in heaven, he was speaking with God face to face. But now, on earth, he's become human. And just like us, he must get alone in a way to do this. The one who, at the Father's side, made the universe, now is practicing this very human action, prayer. And that's amazing. If he had to do this, how much more do we, being sinners, need to do this? I rarely get alone like that to just pour out my heart to God in prayer. We need that. If Jesus needed to do that, we need that. But now let's read what happens next. Look at verse 24 through 26. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! So once again, the disciples, they're in trouble from this wind and waves, but this time you get a sense that it's even worse because they knew Jesus was not with them. And not only that, but there's no daylight left. It's, it says it's 3 a.m. The text wants us to know they're in trouble. Now, if things weren't bad enough with the darkness, not being with Jesus in this horrible storm, they're, they're now met with this whole new threat of a ghost walking towards them. And we might scoff at that. We might overlook this part. We know this is Jesus, but can you imagine being in their shoes? Middle of the night, probably delirious and tired. They're facing death, and now there's a ghost walking toward them. Being in the West, we tend to discredit talk about ghosts or thinking ghosts are real. But as you see, the disciples, they had a worldview that included ghosts. If the apostles had a worldview that included ghosts, please don't discredit them. I tell you, some weird things have happened in the Old Testament with ghosts and spirits. And so the disciples had a very real fear of ghosts. The people we work with very much believe in ghosts or spirits. And that's why stories like this are so impactful. So they're freaking out. They're saying, it's a ghost. But their fear is immediately met with Jesus' words. Look at his words. Verse 27. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. In the first story, the disciples were rebuked for being afraid, even though Jesus was with them. But in this story, they're not rebuked at all. They're just encouraged. Don't be afraid. Why? Why should they not be afraid? Because now Jesus came to them. And that continues to teach us this very important truth that know Jesus, you should be afraid. Jesus, don't be afraid. But that's not the only hurdle we face or that they're facing in being afraid. And it wasn't for Peter that day either. Remember the first temptation, doubting Jesus' presence with us? Now we're going to see Peter play out the second main temptation that Matthew wants us to see. Look at verse 28 through, 30, through 31. Then Peter called out to him, Lord, 
if it's really you, tell me to come out to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Jesus came walking on the water, and he said, take courage, I'm here. He came there to save them. He said, I'm here. But that wasn't enough for Peter. Acting like the fool he was, representing all of Israel, all of humankind, all of us in this room, he says, hey, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you walking on the water. It's funny because when we read this, we don't see what Peter did as a problem. We get so focused on what he was able to do after this that we forget why did he say that in the first place. Jesus stared at them and said, I'm here. Peter says, prove it. Let me tell you something. Almost every time in the Bible when God speaks to someone and they say, prove it, it doesn't go well. (laughs) What should Peter have said when Jesus said, don't worry, take courage, I'm here? Hallelujah, get in the boat right now. Jesus had already proven who he was in that first storm and then over and over again after that, but that was not enough for Peter. Peter's fundamental problem was trusting the word of God. Jesus' words to them as he walked on that water was the very word from God. And Peter had a problem believing this word because he still had a problem understanding who Jesus really was. Do you see that connection? If he understood who Jesus really was, that he was God, he would understand these are God's words to me. So the problem starts with his faith in understanding who Jesus really is. But even though Peter is acting a fool here, Jesus invites his test. But not to satisfy Peter. He does it to provoke the answer to their question, which was yet to be discovered. So Peter, this doubting man, steps out on top of the water, walking on the water on his way to Jesus. And if it was faith that held Peter up on that water, that faith would have also, like I said, caused him to never challenge Jesus and stay put in the boat. It wasn't faith. Faith did not hold Peter up. It was omnipotence. Not Peter's, of course, but Jesus's. Jesus could walk on the water because he's all-powerful. He holds the particles of those water together. He could do anything. And what he did that day is he temporarily applied that power to to the water below Peter just so that Peter could sink a few steps later. Everything Jesus is doing here is intentional. Everything he's doing in your life, too, is intentional. But let's see where this intentionality leads. This rough, sorry, by walking on top of the water, Jesus was already proving he was God. By what happens next is what causes the disciples to finally get it. So Peter's walking on the water by Jesus' hand, and then all of a sudden he looks, he sees the wind and the waves, and the fear that was always there, the fear that was inside due to his doubt, it surfaced once again. And what happens? He starts to sink. He starts to sink not because he lost faith in that moment, but because he tested God. But in this scary moment lies the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. This rough and tough fisherman, Peter, finally calls out to Jesus what he should have called out all along. What does he say? 
Save me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Those are the words in the story that we're meant to replicate, not the walking on the water, not the, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you. Jesus came for those who know that they need saving. That's all of us. And this story is here for us to see that. The story is here for us to say, stop fearing, stop doubting, stop trying to control, start crying out to Jesus. We're all born on a sliding board to hell. And the only one that can save us is Jesus. We need to call out to him the way Peter did. Jesus is causing all this to happen. He's allowing him to walk in that water just to get to the moment where Peter finally is at rock bottom or water bottom. He's about to die. He deserves to die. But Jesus doesn't let him sink. Because he says, Lord, save me, that's the moment Jesus is going to show, I'm here. I am going to save you. He grabs him. This is because Jesus came for fools who doubt. Jesus came for fools who test. Those who try too hard in their own power. Without effort, Jesus pulls Peter up that day. Without effort, Jesus pulls us out of our fallen condition onto solid ground, into his presence. And then just like he did with Peter, he stays with us as we get out of the mess that we put ourselves in, and he brings us to a place of peace. Peter put himself in that mess, in that water, but Jesus effortlessly pulls him back up, and he doesn't send him on his way. He walks with him back to the boat. It's important to know that when Jesus asks this question as he pulls Peter up, why did you doubt me? He's not referring to the doubting when he saw the wind and waves and started to sink. He's referring to the doubting when he was still in the boat. When Jesus said, I'm here, don't be afraid, and he said, if it's really you, that's the doubting he's referring to. That's where Peter went wrong. And that's why he brings him back to the place where he should have stayed before bringing the resolution. The storm's not stopped yet. Jesus is going to walk back with Peter before fixing the problem to show, let's go back to where you should have stayed. Let's go back to where you needed me, where you should have believed me. And look at what it says next in verse 32 and verse 33. When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped, and the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. The peace isn't found, Peter going out to Jesus. The peace is found when Jesus comes to them. The storm stops immediately when they get in that boat. They're safe again, all because Jesus is with them. The whole point of the first story, they shouldn't have been afraid because Jesus is with them. Now Jesus is back with them and there's peace. Do you see the parallel Matthew's trying to set up here? Jesus with you, don't be afraid. Have peace. Jesus not with you, get him with you. <laughs> but the whole point finally comes out in the response, and that's worship. Worshiping Jesus for who he really was, finally. Truly, this is the Son of God, they exclaim. The first story, who is this? The second story, this is the Son of God. What a journey to get to that answer, right? It was necessary, though. By going through that terrifying situation, they would finally cling to that truth 
through their death that many of them would face years later. This is the Son of God. He's with me. I don't need to be afraid. We get to have unhindered access to this story to learn the same truth. But like I said, this still takes faith to believe. Not faith that you muster up. Not by working hard to get to Jesus, by Jesus coming to you. That's his gift. That's what he does for us. He doesn't meet us halfway. He, meet, he comes all the way to us. You're responsible for nothing. He takes us out of death. He takes us from the mud and the mire. He takes us from being fools to being children. It's all him. It's all his grace. We have nothing to boast about. Peter that day, can you imagine him trying to tell this story? That's why Matthew gets to tell it. And, you know, it wasn't Matthew, so it's easier for him. But can you imagine Peter someday telling this story? I think he would have many times. I was a fool. Jesus said, I'm here, and I said, prove it. He wasn't the hero. And as we share about Jesus, as we share about our testimonies, we are never the hero. Jesus is the hero. He did it all for us. We must believe that Jesus is God and that he's in control and that he came for those who call out for, for salvation. And only then can we experience peace through life pains and struggles. And one thing I want to say is that we have to be careful not to do when reading the Bible or talking about Jesus is to overlook, is to not just look at a miracle alone. This is not the only story that we should not do this with. If we look at the miracle alone, we'll completely miss the point of the story, right? Just like I did. I thought, I just need to have more faith and I could actually walk on water. It's not the application of the story. We can't look at the miracle. We have to look at why is the writer of the story telling this? What is he trying to teach through this? What was Jesus trying to originally teach through this? And that's something that where we work, it's very important to do because it can be so easy to look at the miracle and then your application is trying to replicate that miracle. What we should replicate here is, like I said, Jesus, save me. That's the application of this story. Jesus always does what he does to show who he is, to reveal who he is. And maybe we've said the same thing like Peter. Maybe we've called out to God and said, if you're real, then do this in my life, or do that in my life, or speak to me, or show me a sign. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you've asked God to show you a sign or do something to really prove he's real, I bet you we would all embarrassingly raise our hands. Maybe we've told God, God, I'll stop sinning. I'll worship and obey you if you prove your power, that you're worthy. Do something. Guys, this is why the story is written in his word. So we don't have to see it. This is 100% real. Jesus really did do this that day, those two days. And if we believe the story, remember the problem is our faith. If we believe the story, then we'll draw the same conclusion that Jesus is the son of God and that he's worthy of our lives. So that we won't doubt him. We won't ask him to do these silly things to prove who he is. We're all guilty of having little faith when we don't believe this. We're all, like Peter, sinking to our death because of our own fears and doubts. We're all sinners deserving hell. So what should you do? It's like I said, call out, save me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Don't ask him to prove himself. Read the word for yourself. Believe it's true. Surrender your life to him and him alone. He's God. He's the Savior, and he's worthy of worship. You can't walk on water. Only he can. You can't save yourself. You can't stop doubting. Only he could do that for you. That's why this story is here. And my challenge to you is not to just apply this to your life. Go and tell this story. 
Stories are not meant to be held inside. They're meant to be given away. You've heard the story. You've read the story so many times. When was the last time you actually went to a coworker or a neighbor, one of your kid's friends, or a complete stranger at the store? Maybe someone's opening up to you about a struggle of theirs. Maybe someone's just talking about their weekend. Super easy to say, can I tell you a story? I was really struggling with something, and then this story actually changed my life. Can I tell you a story? Give this away. The world needs the gospel, and it starts with telling stories. Jesus was a storyteller. Get out there. Make disciples. Share the word of God. It will bear fruit. 30, 60, or 100-fold, it doesn't matter. It will bear fruit if in faith you go out there and you share his word. And it will bring so much joy so that when you come in here and you worship, you'll cry because you know how good God is. You know how weak we are. You know how close death is. And it will provide community like you've never seen before. When you step outside of your comfort zone as a church and start engaging the world and then coming together to share those stories, coming together with those broken people that come in as a result of that ministry, of that faith, it will fill you with such joy that you will not need to do things to fill that gap in your heart. You will be so full, so happy to be together to encourage each other as you go back out into the world the next week. That's what church is. It's getting together with broken people who are all working together. Do that. I encourage you to do that. It's a super easy story to share. And even if you're someone who's like, I would struggle to learn this story orally, let me know. And I'll send you literally the audio recording that you could learn so you could share this story. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am weak and feeble. And even as I share this message, God, I know that I often stand in the way of your word going out. My flesh, it's just, it's, it's a distraction, Lord. I need more of you. I need less of myself. We all do. God, I pray that we would have enough faith to put this into action, not just in our own lives, to stop doubting you, stop testing you, to truly believe that you are with us and that your word could be trusted. But help us to go beyond that, God. Help us to think about the people we could share this with, to pray for them, and be ready. Be ready to share this with them so that someone who might not have ever heard that Jesus is the Son of God could hear for the first time, and that you would be so gracious to give them faith so that they could believe. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the body here, help it to grow both in numbers and in faith. I pray, Lord, that we would be so sold out for you that any sort of ridicule or trials that we face would not matter, that they would bring us joy, that we would celebrate together, that we are worthy to be ambassadors for your, your message. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.